Everybody get your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 6 today for our study. John chapter 6, we're looking at verses 1 through 15. Um, today we're looking at one of the most famous... Oh, I'm sorry. See you, middle schoolers. You are dismissed. Sorry. Um, today we are looking at one of the most uh, famous events in all of Jesus' ministry. Uh, in fact, there are only two uh, miracles done by Jesus in his ministry, two miracles that, that are recorded in all four of the biographical accounts, all four of the Gospels, the resurrection and this one, okay? I, I think that's pretty significant. Um, we're looking today at the feeding of the 5,000, a familiar story to most of us. Um, what we're going to do here in just a couple minutes, we're going we're to look at this line by line and we're going to pick this thing apart. But before we do that, what I'd like to do is i like to back up um, because I'm afraid that, that we are going to miss the forest for the trees, um, we're going to look here in a second at some of the historical significance and the prophecy fulfillment that we see here in the story. But I want to first take a step back and I want to see what Jesus did. Very simply, Jesus took five loaves of barley, barley you know, bread, five loaves of barley, two fish, and he fed. He multiplied it supernaturally. He fed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. That's a big deal, Right? That's a big deal. That is a significant supernatural act. That is a miracle of God. Um, and, and it's kind of a bizarre miracle as well. I was thinking about this this week. This is kind of a, a bizarre uh, way to go about things. Um, I think it's important that we know one or two things about Jesus' miracles. In particular, why did he do them? Why did he come with signs and wonders? And I think there are multiple reasons, but I think primarily what we think is that Jesus just came with miracles uh, because he wanted to show off who he was. He wanted to show off his power and, and, and declare his identity. And it, that is one of the reasons. Joe talked last week in John chapter 5 that, that one of the testimonies or one of the witnesses to Jesus' true identity is his signs and wonders. We, we, Jesus himself said that last chapter. But what I want to suggest to you today is that perhaps that wasn't the, at least it's not the only reason. I would even venture to say maybe that's not even the primary reason. Because if the main reason why Jesus did miracles was to get people to say, wow, look at Jesus and all that power, right? It was just to display his power to people. Why did he do stuff like this? Uh, if Jesus was just going for the wow factor, why do you feed a bunch of people barley, right? Don't you think he could have come up with something a little bit better than that? Um, healing cripples, uh, feeding the poor, all of that's really sweet and that's great, but certainly Jesus could have come up with a better marketing strategy if all he was trying to do was just get people to say, wow, he's so great, he's so powerful. He could have just, you know, climbed up high on that mountain that, that, that we're going to look at today. He could have just climbed high on that mountain and just jumped off and like flew in the air and did loop-de-loos over the Sea of Galilee, right? And then landed back down. And at that point, everybody's like, wow, this guy's God. This guy's God. And they fall down at his feet and they worship him. But that's not what he does. He feeds people barley. Why? In a recent sermon I heard, um, Tim Keller points out that we typically think of miracles as suspensions of the natural order. Suspensions of the natural order, he says. But he points out that we must see Jesus' miracles from a different perspective, a different angle. Jürgen Moltmann is a, a German philosopher. He says it like this. He says, Jesus' healings are the only true natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Jesus' healings are the only true natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. And here's what he meant. Okay, God, God, God didn't make the world as we know it today. 
He didn't intend the world to be as we know it today. When God created the world, there was never meant to be starvation or blindness or leprosy or poverty or death. These things are unnatural because God never created it to be this way. Our world has been perverted and distorted by sin. That's why Paul says that all of creation has been groaning in anticipation for, the, for its renewal at the return of the king. The miracles of Jesus show us that God is no happier with the condition of the world than we are. He is no happier with the way the world is than we are. That's why every one of his miracles is a direct assault on suffering. Have you noticed that? He feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. He opens the eyes of the blind. He calms the storm that threatens the, the lives of those within the boat. He, he resurrects the dead. The miracles of Jesus are not just suspensions of the natural order. They are temporary restorations of the natural order. You see? They're pointing us back to the way the world was originally created and how it was intended to be. It's also pointing us forward to the way that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be, the way he's bringing about. Jesus is making all things new, and we get a glimpse of him doing that right here. We need to keep that in mind as we look here at John 6. That Jesus is not just displaying who he is or what he's capable of doing. He's giving us a glimpse at the kingdom of God. He's giving us a glimpse at when hunger will be but a memory. When there will be no more wants and there will be no more need. The concerns of this world that seem so overwhelming to us today. And we all have our concerns, don't we? Debt, disease, hurt, pain, strife. One day it will be gone. Jesus says in Revelation that every tear will be wiped away. So as we look at stories like we're, we're going to see in John 6, we've, we've have to, we have to keep this in mind. This is a glimpse at the kingdom that is to come. Um, the shadow that we live under today is but a small and a passing thing. Every tear will be wiped away. Every scar will be healed. Every stain will be cleansed. Um, one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite stories uh, called The Lord of the Rings um, is when Frodo and Sam are traveling to Mount Doom. They're going to destroy the ring, right? And they have to take this perilous journey through uh, uh, Middle Earth, but they're walking through the land of Mordor. And Mordor is this barren wasteland. It's this barren wasteland, and, and, and they're, Frodo and Sam have been on this really for months, uh, and, and they're tired, and they're hungry, uh, and there's danger everywhere around them. Even the sky over Mordor is just, it's got this kind of constant uh, overcast, just this menacing shadow, this dark shadow over them. But at one point in, the, in their journey in, in Mordor, Sam Gamgee, he looks up and he catches the glimpse of this star that's breaking through the shadow. It just kind of breaks you. Just for, just for a brief moment, he sees the star coming through the shadow. Tolkien, the author, writes this. He says, Far above in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. But there, peeping among the clouds, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and courage returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. As the story that we're going to look at today in John 6 is the white star that twinkles through the shadow. It, again, we're getting a glimpse at the kingdom of God that is to come. 
My hope is that as we study this, that the beauty of the story would catch your heart, that it would, it would give you the courage to press on, knowing that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there is light and high beauty forever that awaits us. Awaits us. Do you believe that? There is light and high beauty that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Let's look at this. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing in the sick. So Jesus and his disciples are on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and they head over to the eastern side of the sea, most likely the northeastern side, we think. It was um, uh, in a place that we now call the Golan Heights. And this is a remote area, kind of a mountainous area, and, and we're told that a large crowd comes to him. And we don't know uh, exactly how many people were there. We're told in verse 10 that there uh, you know, are 5,000 in number, um, but we know that the way the, the Jews counted in that day was they would uh, count the men, specifically heads of families, so they wouldn't count single men, they wouldn't count women, they wouldn't count children. So essentially what, what this is saying is there were 5,000 families present. And so we don't know exactly how many were present. It could have been um, anywhere between five to you know, upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people present. So verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now I think, I think Jesus asked Philip this question in particular because we know that from earlier in the gospel that, John, excuse me, that Philip is from Bethsaida and Bethsaida is right there at the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So, so I think Philip's from that area. So I think Jesus picked Philip saying, hey, you're from this area. Uh, where's a good place to eat for like 15,000 people, okay? But actually what, what John says, John tells us in the very next verse, he says, uh, he tells us what's actually underlying this question. There's, there's some ulterior motives that Jesus has here. Verse 6, he said this to test him. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now we've got to camp here for a minute because... This, is an, this raises a, an important uh, uh, thing that we, we don't like to think about maybe or we often forget. Philip is a disciple of Jesus. What's a disciple? A, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student who sits at the feet of his teacher, that he might be more like him. Philip is a student. And listen, we've got some teachers in this room. Uh, more than that, every one of us here has been a student at one point or another. As a student, you take tests, don't you? Every student takes tests. Every student takes exams. They have to be examined. Friends, we forget about this, but God tests us. You realize that? God tests us. Um, We see it all throughout the scriptures. God tested Adam in the Garden of Eden. That was what the forbidden fruit was all about. It wasn't poison in that apple. It was a test. Would, would, Would Adam and Eve trust God to be God? God tested Abraham. Remember when he said, he said go, go sacrifice your son Isaac on the mountain. God knew full well he wasn't going to allow Abraham to go through with it and hurt his son. But he didn't tell Abraham that, did he? Why? It was a test. It was a test. God tested Job because, you know, there was some question about Job's integrity and his motivations. There's this, there's this interesting story in Deuteronomy chapter 13 where Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and, and he, Moses tells the Israelites, he says, um, one day there's going to be false prophets that are going to arise among you, and these false prophets, they're going to they're 
issue some prophecies. And those prophecies may actually come true. And, and he said, you know, but eventually those false prophets are going to rise up and they're going to actually try to lead you into the worship of false gods. And Moses says, don't do it. Don't follow him. But then Moses says something really interesting in, in Deuteronomy 13. Uh, right after that, he says, Mo, uh, he says, the Lord has sent the false prophet among you to test you. Isn't that interesting? God tests us. If you are a student, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you too will be tested. And I think sometimes we like to think that we're beyond that point. Especially for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, we like to think like we're the Jedi Knights of Christianity. But we're Padawans. You are but a Padawan. I don't care if you've been a Christian here for 50 years. You're still a Padawan. Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. So we're going to see how much more nerdy we can get here. But this is significant. There's a reason for pointing this out, and I'll tell you why. Um, When difficult times come in our lives, oftentimes the only theological category uh, that we have for trials is that it's spiritual warfare from the devil. That's, that's oftentimes the only thing that we consider. For many Christians, every time something uh, troublesome comes, any kind of trial or tribulation happens in our life, we assume Satan is attacking me. Spiritual warfare is coming up against me. I've got to, you know, I don't receive that. I rebuke the demons. Okay? Now, is Satan real? Absolutely. Is spiritual warfare real? Absolutely. Opposition and attack is real. But there is another theological category that must be considered. It's real. The, the, the biblical truth is that the Bible tells us God tests us. What, what if in the midst of uh, maybe a trial or tribulation that you're experiencing actually right now at this very moment, this very day, rather than freaking out and assuming that God has abandoned you and Satan is coming on to attack you, could you consider the very real possibility that maybe God is testing you? Because if you are a disciple of Jesus, that will happen. Does anybody in here feel like it's, like it's exam week? Exam year, Right? <laughs> just like when you think the test is done, you turn, there's another page. Like, man, this, this we won't stop. Some tests last a few minutes, and others are going to last our entire lives. Some will last our entire lives. But listen, God is, if you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, he is committed to conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, making you like his son Jesus. Therefore, there will be tests given to you that you might grow, that you might grow. You see, the tests are not for God's sake, because God knows what's in my heart, right? God knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in the heart of men and women. He doesn't need to sift us out so that he can acquire some new information about us that he's lacking. The tests are given for our sake. Because a test points out to the student. You get that, that, that test back. You, the test points out to the student where there are strong and where there is some deficit. Tests help you to identify strengths and weaknesses. And if, and if we're going to put our sin to death, as Christ has called us to do, then our eyes need to be open to where we are weak, to where there are strongholds in our life. Our guys' community group are reading through Proverbs, and we, we read this, this uh, verse this week, Proverbs 17.3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. In other words, if you want a heart of silver or a heart of gold, you are going to need to go through some fire. There's going to be some fire. 
Jesus is committed to making you pure and lovely and beautiful. We know that happens in Christ positionally. Positionally, we are made beautiful in Christ, but he's going to work out in the outside of us what's already happened on the inside. And to do that, it takes some refining. It takes some purifying, and that can be uh, through fire. So let's see how Philip does with his test. Jesus is testing him. Jesus asks Philip, he said, where can we find some food for everybody? Philip answered him, verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Okay, we see the response. In short, pass or fail? Fail, right, they failed. Why? Because they didn't have enough money stored up or enough food to to feed the people? Is that why they failed? No. Jesus knew they didn't have enough. They failed because they were still looking at their own resources. They failed because they were still looking at their own abilities and their own power. Now, typically in in our world, a test is given to measure your abilities. A test is given to determine your adequacy in a certain area. But this test given by Jesus was to determine their knowledge of their inadequacy. This test was given to to the disciples to say, do you realize that you are inadequate and that I am adequate? Jesus asks the disciples about the food to remind them of their own powerlessness, that they are powerless. Jesus has a tendency to do this, doesn't he? He puts us in situations uh, where we are come face-to-face with our inadequacy. Puts us in situations where we come face-to-face with realizing just how powerless we really are. I've heard it said that Until you know your powerlessness, you are unable to be a channel for his power. Until you realize you're powerless, you you, you are unable to be a channel for his power. Um, Some of you in here have worked through a 12-step program in the past. Um, Anybody remember what the first step is, 12 steps? You're powerless over your problem. That's the first step. You are powerless over your problem. You can't go on to step two until you've embraced that reality. You cannot move on in the program until you've, you've embraced that reality. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's for addictions, and that's for people with, with you know, real issues. But guys, that's a fundamental biblical truth for every person in here, every person on the planet. You are powerless over your problem. Um, perhaps, uh, God, I don't know what you're going through. I don't. I don't know, I don't know the, 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 the things that are happening in your home and the things that are happening at work, things that are happening in your heart, but, but perhaps consider just for a moment some of the trials and tribulations that you're facing. They could be from Satan. They're the spiritual warfare of Israel. That could be an actual attack, but it also could be. God may be allowing some things into your life. Consider for a moment. God might be allowing some things into your life today because you need to be reminded that you are powerless and you need him. You cannot live and thrive without him. Your marriage cannot thrive based on your own power. You know that? Your ma- marriage cannot thrive based on whatever you know, strategies or books you read. It cannot, be based, or it cannot thrive based on your own power. Your children cannot be managed based on your own power. Your, your, the loneliness that you might be feeling today cannot be uh, managed or healed based on your own power. That, the battle against that sin that is just plaguing you and has been plaguing you for years now, it cannot be won based on your own power. Do you know that? You are powerless over your problem. And if you're beginning to understand this and embrace this reality, um, it can be easy to, to just fall into despair. You're like, you're telling me I'm powerless? I can't do anything right? You know, what a, what a message. I'm glad I came today. Right? But if you're, if you're beginning to embrace this biblical truth, I'm, I want to encourage you, don't despair. 
don't despair. If Jesus is opening your eyes to understanding that, that we are indeed powerless in and of ourselves, know that he is showing you that out of love. Out of love. I've heard it said that Jesus is like a surgeon. That no surgeon just cuts somebody open, makes a big hole in them, uh, you know, for the sake of making the hole. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't make an incision and then say, okay, my job's, I'm just going to wash my hands and walk away. There's a big gaping hole in them now. Okay? Jesus doesn't do that. He cuts us open. He exposes us because he wants us to be healed. Because there is something that needs to be removed. There is some cancer within us that is absolutely killing us unless it's addressed. And the most loving thing that God can do is tenderly take that knife and make the incision and expose us and then remove it, address it, heal it. There's pain in the night, right? But what? Joy comes in the morning. So they failed the task. What, what would it have looked like? What would it lo- have looked like if history was rewritten um, and, and the disciples passed the test? What would that have looked like? What, what should they have done? What, what should they have done differently? I think um, Jesus says, uh, what are we going to feed them? And then Philip says, Lord, I, I can't feed them, but you can. I can't do it, but you can. Let me be a channel for your power. Tell me what to do. I can't do it. You can. Tell me what to do. That's, that's passing the test, I believe. I'm unable to do it on my own. I need you and your power. Just tell me what to do. Tell me where to go. Um, again, I'm just going to come right back to the marriage part. Um, your marriage may be crumbling. Um, you have a couple of options uh, at this moment. You can, you can look down at yourself and you can look at your abilities and your resources and you can, uh, you can say, I don't have what it takes. My, my marriage is, is too far gone. It's beyond hope. I, don't, I can't conjure up the patience. I can't conjure up the grace. I can't, even con- I can't conjure up the love or even the desire for that matter. I can't do it. That's what Philip did. That's what Philip the disciple did. I'm not saying me, Philip. I'm Philip the disciple. That's what Philip did. He said, I can't do it. It's impossible. You can answer that way or you can say, you can look at that marriage and say, God, I can't do it, but you can You have the power to heal. You have the power to do the impossible. You do it. Just tell me what to do. I'm your man. That's what we do. That's how we answer. Let's keep going. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So Jesus takes the food from the kid. He, uh, we're told in other gospels that he, he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, he distributes it to the people. Matthew tells us it was actually the disciples who, who took the bread and distributed it among the, the crowd. And then after everybody is completely satisfied, completely filled, the disciples go back around, the 12 disciples go back around, and they collect the food that was left over. Um, and there, there are 12 big baskets full, is what we're told. Um, I read this week that the Jews had a custom of leaving something for those that had served. So I think, I don't know this, but I think that the 12 basketfuls were for the disciples who had served. 
I think that's significant. I think that's kind of cool. Um, I want to point out one very obvious, very important principle. It's, it's jumping off the page. We have to talk about it. Um, how did Jesus feed the people? Remember, if, if, if this was just another way, just another opportunity to, for Jesus to flex his muscles and to show his power, display who he is, he could have done a better job, right? He could have just snapped his fingers, flaming yawn, sitting right there in everybody's lap. That would have been great. It would have been really, really cool to, to witness and eat. Uh, but he doesn't do that, does he? Because Jesus' miracles are not just to show us who he is, but also the nature of his mission. He's trying to teach us something in what he does here. He's, he's a good teacher, isn't he? What is he teaching us? What is, the, what is the message of this story? I think it's this. How does Jesus channel his power? What instrument does he use to channel his power? The poor boy in his lunch. A poor little boy in his lunch. We know that the boy is poor, by the way, because he's eating barley. He's eating barley loaves. That, the barley was the bread for the poor. You, you feed barley to animals and the poorest of the poor. That's who ate barley. This is a poor little boy from a poor family. He has very little to offer. From a worldly perspective, this kid is utterly insignificant. He's a nobody. And for some of you here today, I can guarantee there's some here today that feel this very same way. I, I'm a nobody. I'm insignificant. I'm incapable of you know, doing anything significant in the name of Christ, anything significant for the kingdom of God. Um, but friends, look at this story. Here's the principle. Here's the message that's coming out of the story. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the insignificant becomes significant. That's the message of the story. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the insufficient become sufficient. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the poor man's bread becomes a feast for thousands. The question is, um, will you place what little you have in his hands? That's the question. Will you place what little you have in his hands? Because we are that poor boy. We are inadequate. We are insufficient. Uh, we are powerless. But in the hands of Jesus Christ? Imagine. I can't tell you how much I resonate um, with this story. Uh, I know it's a little silly, but when, uh, whenever I see Jesus interact with Philip, the disciple, I, my, my ears do perk up a little bit. That, that is my namesake. Okay, I was named after this guy. And so I, do my, I listen just a little bit closer to their encounters. And so... Um, Jesus says, Philip, you know, we need to feed these people. And, and then Philip says, Lord, there, there's no way I can do that. There's no way I'm, I'm capable of doing that. Other gospel writers tell us that Philip actually tells Jesus, um, send these people away so they can go somewhere else where they can actually find food. And then Jesus looks down and says, Philip, no, no, you feed them. He says, no, you feed them. Um, I'll be a little vulnerable here for a minute, a little honest. Um, it's been two years or so since I've been in the, my current role here at Twin Oaks. It's about two years. Um, and I cannot tell you how often I feel utterly inadequate to care for this church or to make a difference in the city. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how often that happens. I think my intellect isn't strong enough. My vision isn't big enough. My experience isn't wide enough. My love isn't deep enough. These are the things that go through my head constantly, constantly. And every day, every day I have a choice. Um, I can be Philip the disciple who argues with Jesus, who wallows in his despair because he's constantly looking at his uh, uh, inabilities and his, the lack of resources. Or I can be the poor little boy. 
I can be that little poor boy who takes what little he has and puts it in the hand of Jesus and, and Jesus multiplies it in a way that only he can. I can, I can take what little I have and put it in his hands and let him do with it as he sees fit. You have that same choice every day. One commentator said it like this. He said, it is not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. Thank God for that. Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. The church is always in a crisis and always will be. There will be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. In God's economy, only the inadequate are adequate. And I could give you a dozen examples from the scriptures. We can all think of some, I'm sure. But let me give you one uh, example just a little bit closer to home. Uh, many of you in here know that we're starting, uh, kind of launching in a movement called, called DMDs, D- Disciple, Disciple Making Disciples. Disciple Making Disciples. Um, we're, we're rallying together a group of people from within this church that are committing to meet regularly together to be equipped and to be, and be spurred on to go out and make disciples where we live, work, and play. Okay? And, and the, this, this group is going to be aggressively studying the scriptures and putting these scriptures into practice and praying and, and sharing, their, sharing Jesus with their friends and their family and their uh, neighbors and their coworkers. Uh, and God willing, as we see people place their faith in Jesus, our DMDs are taking responsibility to, to help shepherd them and help them grow and teach them how they too can go out and make disciples. And, 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 and this is all being done within the context of these missional communities, these missional community groups. Now, the strategies that we're using are loosely based on the, the uh, 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 church planning movement, where the, this church planner training centers that we're starting in uh, northern Vietnam as a church. Um, the question that we've been asking for almost six months, kind of dreaming and talking and strategizing, can we do right in our own front yard what we're helping to launch in Vietnam? Is it possible? Um, and then I heard through the grapevine just recently, I heard through the grapevine that the folks over at City Team uh, have been engaged for several years here in San Jose in exactly what we're wanting to do, what we've been dreaming about. And so I, I uh, reached out to the, the director over there for the disciple-making movement, and this last Wednesday I sat for two hours in their conference room with, this, with their director just listening to story after story after story of how God is using ordinary people who make themselves available to God, who have very little to offer, but they make themselves available to God and they're reaching people for Jesus. It was such an encouraging time. I left there so, so motivated and so encouraged. He told me this one story I want to share with you. He told me about a woman named Carmen. This woman named Carmen uh, is a uh, widow with six kids. Widow with six kids. She works two jobs to try to make ends meet. Um, this woman, Carmen, has a deep love for the Lord and, and a deep burden for the lost and the needy in San Jose. And so despite you know, her unbelievable schedule. I, have, I can't even comprehend how overwhelmed she must be on a daily basis. Widow, six kids, two jobs. Um, but every week, this woman takes time. She makes the time to go out of her house to walk through the neighborhoods and pray for her neighbors. And pray for, go, she goes to different communities and she looks for opportunities to share about Jesus, to point people to Jesus and to meet needs. She, she started going out every week and she did this for 10 months straight in these different neighborhoods. Um, and she go, again, she just goes out. She prays God's blessing on her neighbors. She you know, looks for opportunities to, to, to share Jesus, just like we do in prayer and share. 
by the way. We, we do this every month, so you can, you can be a part of that too. Uh, but she did this for 10 months straight without any fruit. No fruit. 10 months every week. Um, she got pretty discouraged, uh, as you can imagine, until one day she uh, met, this, met a gentleman out on his driveway. She was walking through the, the neighborhood. She introduced herself, said, hey, my name is Carmen. Um, hey, you know, I, I just... I, I prayed, and I feel like God's led me to this neighborhood, and I've just been praying for you all. And, and, you know, I've actually got some backpacks with some school supplies, and I'm looking for some families in this neighborhood that we could bless, maybe that some families that are in need. Do you know of anybody who's really got, uh, you know, strong connections in this neighborhood to help connect me with families that we can bless? Uh, and so the man said, well, let me introduce you to my daughter. So he, she meets the daughter, goes in the house, sits down with this man's daughter, Jocelyn. And uh, she Carmen tells Jocelyn the same thing, and Jocelyn says, well, I, I can probably help you, but why are you doing that? Like, are you, are, you must be affiliated with some organization or something. Who sent you out here? And she said, no, honestly, I just, I've been praying, and I really believe that God's led me to this neighborhood, and I want to bless some families who might be in need. But in addition to that, I also think that maybe there might be some families here who might be interested in discovering God through the Bible. I want to help some families discover God through the Bible. And Jocelyn says, really? My family needs God. That's what she said, my, my family needs God. She said, we, you know, we grew up Catholic, we haven't been to Mass in a long time, but my family really needs God. And so they talked for a little while, and Carmen and Justin, they, they, they planned, you know, several days later, she was, Carmen was going to come back, and Justin was going to have her whole family there. And, 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 and Carmen was going to explain to them about this Bible study that they could do together, right in their very own home, so that they could discover God through the Bible. So several days later, Carmen goes at the agreed-upon time, and she shows up, and there are cars in the driveway, and there's cars along the street, and she's like, great, they're having a party. They, they, they forgot I was coming. Another dead end. So discouraged, she almost drove away. And then she thought, well, I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want them to think that I forgot about them. So she goes up to the door, knocks on the door. They open the door, and Jocelyn, you know, she sees Jocelyn, and Jocelyn's like, Carmen, you're here. She's here, everybody. And they, they bring her in, and there are people packing in the living room. Multiple families have gathered so that so that Carmen could help these families discover God through the Bible. And so Carmen, as you can imagine, is overwhelmed because this is just, just an ordinary Christian. She's not no, virtually no you know, ministry experience, you know, preaching experience. She's like, and so she's like, how am I going to present Jesus and present the Bible to a whole crowd of people? And so she stammers and she stutters and she gets through it and she talks about this long-term study they could do together to have a relationship with God, be able to show them how to relate with God. Um, and so they all agreed. Everybody in the room, they said, well, they all agreed. We're going to come back the next week, and we're going to begin this study together. So Carmen comes back the next week. 17 families. Word spread. 17 families are, are, are assembled at that house when Carmen shows up. The next week, 28 families are in, are in the home. Well, not in the home. They're, they've over, they flooded out. They're actually meeting out on their front lawn. It got to the point where the police actually came and shut them down that day. Because if you have more than 49 people at one time, you've got to have a permit. And so Jocelyn's dad actually got upset. She's like, are you kidding me? We're out here drinking all the time, and you never say anything. Uh, now that we're actually doing something good, you want to shut us down? So five families from within that group that was out meeting on that front lawn uh, said, it's okay, we'll, we'll open up our homes at different times. Uh, and so fast forward from Jocelyn's home, these, these five second-generation groups started. Out of those five groups, 15 third-generation groups were started. From those 15, 13 fourth-generation groups were started, and it kept multiplying. You know, currently today, they're on their seventh generation of groups. There's over 200 people that attend those studies each and every week. That's over 200 people who are learning to discover God through the Bible. How did that happen? 
How did that happen? It, it happened because there was a widow of six kids with two jobs who had the courage and the audacity and the perseverance to walk outside of her door and to pray for her neighbors. It didn't happen because of, of her uh, you know, teaching capabilities or her charisma or her state-of-the-art facility or her great marketing strategy. It was the power of God through a willing vessel. You guys realize that we're not talking about Vietnam. We're not talking about somewhere in another part of the country. That, that's happening right here in our front yard. That's happening here in San Jose. That, that so encouraged me, what God is doing in and among us. Let me give you two challenges in light of this. Um, you will face challenges. You will face obstacles. You will face discouragement if you try to live for Jesus Christ this week. It may be like Carmen when she, she it took her 10 months. That, when, I, when, when, when Hermie, the director there, told me that story, the first thing that caught my, 10 months, and she didn't give up. She kept at it. Saw no fruit, but she was faithful because she cared for her neighbors and she loved the Lord and she was obedient to the call of go and make disciples. Um, 10 months. You, you, there's going to be times where you're going to face discouragement. Um, or there might be times like, you know, where Carmen, she walks in and she sees four or five families there for that first time and she's like, I don't know how to tell these people about Jesus. What do I do? What do I say? Carmen had the opportunity. The front door was right there. She could have said, I'm guys, guys, I'm sorry. This is beyond my abilities. I'm, I'll come back with a professional later. And she could have bolted. She could have ran. She could have fleed. There are going to be times when you're going to face challenges or discouragement if you choose to live for Christ. And you have two options in that moment. You can look down like Philip did at your powerlessness. You can look down at your inabilities and your inadequacies. And you can run. You can flee. You can change the subject. Or you can trust Jesus and his power. You can say, I can't, but he can. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to say. Tell me where to go. When Satan tempted Jesus to abandon his mission, what did Jesus use as a weapon to fight back? Say it loud. The word, the scripture, truth. So what I'd like to do today, with the understanding that you're, you're, there is going to be opposition, there are going to be challenges, I'd like to put a weapon in your hand today. And a weapon in my hand as well. Um, take this passage of scripture, memorize it this week. That's my first challenge to you. Take this passage of scripture and memorize it this week. At the very least, get your pencils out or your pens out and write this down. Your phone's out, write this down. Okay? And when, when, these, when these situations come up that are beyond your ability... Remind yourself of this. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. In and of yourself, you are powerless. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you were a disciple of Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Cheryl, can we leave that up just for a couple of minutes so people get a chance to write that down? Let me tell you the second challenge while you're doing that. Let's follow the example of Carmen this week. Can we do that? Would you consider this week one time walking through your neighborhood and praying for your neighbors? Would you think about that? Would you, would you take... Let me be more specific. Think of a television show, a 30-minute television show that you watch this week, that you're going to watch this week, something you watch religiously, okay? 
Sacrifice it this week. Sacrifice it. TiVo it. Is TiVo a thing anymore? TiVo, whatever. There's Hulu, all right? Watch it online. Sacrifice that that week. Mark it on your calendars, whatever you got to do. Put it, think about it right now. Turn off the television and walk outside. And, and st- take a stroll through your neighborhood. And pray for your neighbors. Pray for your family. Pray, for, pray that God would, would bless your neighbors, that he would bring heal, uh, healing and wholeness in every area, spiritually and physically and emotionally and financially and relationally. Pray for God's blessing uh, on your neighbors. And, and, and when you're out there, be available. Be, be open to the idea that God might use you to actually get in a conversation with somebody and use that opportunity to, to point people to him. Um, take your family with you. Teach your kids how to pray for their neighbors. I'm committing to do that this week. I hope you'll join me. We've got, we may not have much to offer, but we've got some barley, we've got some fish to put in the hands of Jesus. And there are literally thousands and thousands, there's 900,000 people in this city alone that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So we've got to finish this up here. Last, just last two verses. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus supernaturally multiplies this bread, and they assume that he must be, what they say, the prophet. The prophet. Why? Why would they assume that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 18, it's in the Old Testament, refers to a prophet who is to come that is to be like Moses. He's like to be the next Moses. It was said in the Jewish writings that uh, this Messiah would be one who would feed them bread from heaven. Sort of like what happened with Moses and the Israelites and the manna that came down every morning uh, that, that, that God provided in that, in that wilderness. Um, the book of Second Baruch, we don't have it in our Bible, but it's one of the intertestamental writings. It was written between, there's a collection of books called the Old Testament, a collection of books called the New Testament. There's several hundred years between the writings of those collections, uh, which we, intertestament uh, time. There was, this book was written, it was uh, one of the Jewish writings, and it says this, in those days, the Messiah will appear and feed them with bread from on high. The Messiah will appear and feed them with bread from on high. So here comes Jesus Christ, and there's all this hype that he might be the, the Messiah, the, the prophet that is to come. And they're in the wilderness, and then he supernaturally feeds them with bread. Okay, so you can imagine the uproar that this caused. But Jesus, is, is, again, is explicitly stating, I'm the Messiah. I'm the prophet. He says this in virtually every story. He either says it or he illustrates it virtually on every page of the Gospels. But who was this prophet and Messiah supposed to be? Who were they expecting? More than who they were expecting, who, who was God sending? Deuteronomy 18 talks about the time when uh, Moses brings the Israelites to the mountain. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with this story, but uh, Moses brings the Israelites to the mountain. God said, I'm going to come here and I'm going to interact with my people. I'm going to come and relate, talk with my people. Uh, and so the, the people go to the mountain and then God's glory comes down and it rests on the mountain. The place is trembling. You can just imagine how terrifying that was to be in the very presence of God. And so as the Israelites see the very glory of God coming down on the mountain, they say, uh, we shouldn't be here right now. Um, Moses, uh, you do it. We're too weak. We're too sinful. God is too holy. Uh, We can't come near him. Moses, you be our mediator. You be our bridge. You be the bridge between us and God. And then Moses says here in Deuteronomy 18, he says, well, one day a real prophet's going to come. One day a true mediator 
will come. One day a true bridge will show up. And Jesus, again, is explicitly saying, I'm here. It's me. I'm here. The mediator, the bridge. If you would receive me as your Savior, if you would receive me as your Lord, I will be the bridge between you and God. There were thousands and thousands of thousands of people in that field that were hungry that day. But they were, they were, they were much hungrier than they realized. They were hungry on a much deeper level than I think they understood. Because they didn't just need some bread for their stomach. They needed the bread of life. Jesus is going to say that later in this chapter. He said, I'm the bread of life. You see, Jesus gives the bread, but he's also the bread. He's the giver and the gift. We are created to know and enjoy and reflect God. And without him, we are starving. We are starving. And those people that day were starving. John Paul Sartre. A philosopher, he was an atheist. He had a very famous little passage in which he speaks to this hunger. In this little passage, Sartre says this. He says, he says that God does not exist, I cannot deny. I told you, he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God. He says that God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. See what he's saying? He said, I just can't get myself to believe in God. But I, there's, there's, I, there's, for some reason I can't explain, I'm hungry for him. I'm hungry for something that only he can provide. See that little bit of honesty there? There is, a, there is a hunger in each of us that we just cannot deny. Some of you in here today may be famished. You may be hungry. And I'm telling you by the authority of the Holy Scriptures and, and by personal experience that the only way that you can be satisfied is through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to feed you in the same way that he fed the thousands that day. Um, remember how he did it? How did he feed the thousands? Remember, he took the bread, he, he blessed the bread, he broke it, and he distributed it to those who would receive it. Jesus is the bread of life. He was blessed and he was broken. And he's available to all who would receive him. Remember, when Jesus is being baptized, the father looks down on him and, 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 and blesses the son. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was broken. His body was broken on the cross. He was torn to pieces so that you and I could be made whole. He was consumed so that you and I can be satisfied. On the night that he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he, he took the bread at that table and he held it up and he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Take it and eat. Take it and eat. Have you taken it? He offers it freely. Have you received the forgiveness that Jesus offers you through the cross, through his brokenness? Have you been made whole? Guys, he, he, he paid the penalty for your sins. There is no penalty left when you, when you place your faith in Jesus. There is no price left for you to pay. You can be free. You can be cleansed. Ask him to be your savior. Ask him to be your Lord. Take your, your weaknesses and your inadequacies and your powerlessness and you place it in his hands and you ask him for the power to live for him from this day forward. Let's pray together.